You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, it seems like everyone's talking about Gillette today. Yeah, I've seen some of that on social media. Just kind of like, you know, it's funny how social media works. You just kind of see these traces of things people are talking about. And I had no clue what it was. So often that then means I Google it, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually use DuckDuckGo because of the privacy features are a lot better as a search engine. But so I went and DuckDuckGo'd it and, okay. uh, found, and found the commercial and the conversations that are happening around it, which I didn't know Gillette was really trying to address issues around toxic masculinity and issues yeah. like that. But the commercial in short for people who haven't seen it, it's about two minutes. It's kind of like a extended commercial you can watch online really talks about the, their motto has been Gillette, the best a man can get, right? And it's been these ideas of masculinity, often probably concern that Austin highlights, you know, being a man who's, se- you know, sexually successful. And like, it shows these images of men. And they kind of questioned what is a man in this ad by bringing up some of the problems with masculinity that can lead to bullying, that can lead to fighting, that can lead to violence in other forms. And so it was, I found it very powerful. Yeah, the when everyone was saying boys will be boys, boys will be boys, like let the boys do the boys do. And then finally in the end, the guy stops the kid from being beaten up and saying, you know, setting an example for his son. I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah, and you see men having conversations with their kids, yeah. you know, around how to address certain issues and be sensitive and be upstanders, a term we often use in education. It's interesting that they make razors. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it's interesting that they've been able to create space for this type of dialogue, although it's like what Dove has done, activism and some messages around women's empowerment, around the images that the ways they're portrayed and self-esteem and, and taking control of that narrative. Yeah, I like my capitalism with a with a positive <laughs> message. Right? I like my corporate messages. Nice. But I think one of the issues here is is how do you address issues like violence in our society, particularly when it comes to like issues like sexual harassment and violence, which have come up more with the Me Too movement. What does your school do anything to address these types of issues in, in, with teachers and students? So this year was the first year that, at least that I remember, that we actually had online trainings. So this is one of the first years that I remember us doing it. We actually had some online trainings on bully prevention, on slips and falls. And on preventing child sexual abuse. And it was really interesting. That particular one was an hour-long presentation answering some questions. But the discussions that we had as teachers, like during our lunch hour, lunch hour, that's funny, during our lunch 15 minutes, was really interesting. I felt like for a couple days we're just, we're talking about that. And I feel like that's the first time we were ever really talking about, well, child sexual abuse in particular. It would be nice to have some more follow-up, particularly small group Mm follow-up, I think would be very helpful. But it's not really something that I feel like that we have done often. I know that the senior class sometimes have watched misrepresentation. I don't yeah. teach seniors, so I actually don't know how how that 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 went. Yeah, I've used that film before. It's by Jennifer Newsom, who 
is done a lot of activism as an actress on her own right, and her husband's now the governor of, of um, California. But she did that misrepresentation uh, was a tremendous film, and then she did one on masculinity called The Mask You Live In, which are both great educational resources. But I know when I was teaching, I felt like it wasn't addressed, and in higher ed, I feel like I've, there's almost nothing besides like the single workshop. I guess to me, if we're really going to address these issues, it's not just about stopping the problem, but creating cultures that are affirming in positive ways. That way you have a culture that where this stuff would be less likely to happen, but also people are more empowered to speak out about it. But I think, you know, the whole Me Too movement and the, some of the recent changes in society need to push schools, universities, K-12 schools and educators just to think about what we can do on this. And fortunately, we have a guest who can talk about a lot of these issues and has been doing some activist work on her own. Excellent. Brenda Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Do you mind telling us a little bit about you and your story? Sure. So I, in 2014, came forward with my story of sexual assault in 1998 as a young woman. I was sexually assaulted by four college football players. After the assault happened, right after it happened, I went to the hospital and I got a rape kit done. I went to the police and I did everything that, you know, a, a quote unquote good victim does to pursue justice. And all four men were arrested the next day. And then it became a news story because two of them went to Oregon State University. So immediately the backlash started. People called me a liar. They wanted to know why I was trying to ruin these young men's lives. People turned on me. I got called names, bullied. It was it was awful. Kind of a lot of the same backlash you see today whenever a survivor comes forward. Yeah. People questioning their their motives and why are you lying? Why are you trying to ruin this man's life? That kind of thing. So that was a really, I mean, the rape itself was traumatic, but also the backlash and people turning on me and abandoning me was really traumatic for me also. The DA at the time told me that I didn't have a good case. And so I made an informed decision based on that. And I dropped the charges. And then that was a news story also, because everything that happened to me was a news story. I was I was Jane Doe, but people in my circle, people in my close community knew it was me. But then when I dropped the charges, then people said, see, we told you she's a liar. If she was really raped, she would prosecute, which is another fallacy that we see playing out today, right? So then another article came out during that time period. Coach Mike Riley was the head football coach at the time. And when he was asked about his players being arrested and the, the charges and everything, he said, these are good guys that made a bad choice. And he gave him a one-game suspension from the football season. And so this was all really hard for me. I didn't, I didn't understand that comment. You know, these are just good guys that just made a bad choice. Like, rape is just a bad choice. Right. But then for the next 16 years, I tried to move on with my life. I had two sons. I went to nursing school. I became a registered nurse and really just tried to forget that it happened. But this type of trauma is not something you forget. And it really kind of turns your entire life upside down. You are never the same after. So for those 16 years, I dealt with a lot of depression. I had PTSD. I had a borderline eating disorder, suicidal, lots of suicidal ideation, lots of self-blame, self-hatred, self-loathing, just you name it. Luckily, I, I never developed a drug addiction or alcohol addiction or anything. You know, many survivors do. But then through a kind of a series of events in 2014, I ended up connecting with a reporter and he said, if you'd like to go public with your story, I'll write it. And so I made the decision to put my name and my face on it. And that story ran in 2014. 
And this time it was interesting because my community didn't turn on me this time. This time people believed me and they loved on me and other survivors started reaching out to me. And, and this was a scary time for me because in 2014, we had, had not yet seen the Me Too movement. So there wasn't a lot of people sharing their stories publicly, especially, you know, putting their names and their faces on it. So the response in general was overwhelmingly positive and an investigation was done. So we found out through the investigation that the DA admitted that they lied to me in 1998. They said I didn't have a good case, but they actually had taped confessions from all four men. The police threw my rape, my rape kit in the trash. They didn't test it. They didn't, they threw all my evidence away three years before the statute of limitations was up. And then the university president, I was not a student at Oregon State. In 1998, I had reported to them what happened to me. The university president at the time said, don't talk about Brenda. And nobody did. And so through all of this, they were able to silence me and get me to go away. And the reason that they did that is because they were trying to get donors to donate millions of dollars to renovate the football stadium. And so back then, the football stadium, Oregon State, was called Parker Stadium. And one year later, after they kind of got me to go away, they raised that money and they renovated the football stadium. So I, I kind of live with the idea that that stadium was kind of built off of my back and in my pain and a lot of injustice happened. And then that's kind of when my activism started was after that I had gone to a lawyer and I said, you know, what can I do and who can I sue? Can't be okay for the police to throw my evidence away. It can't be okay for the DA to lie to me. How is this okay? And who can we hold accountable? And I found out that there was nothing I could do, like literally nothing I could do. So the first thing I did was I started doing legislative work. I'm a citizen lobbyist. I helped to extend the statute of limitations to prosecute. I helped create a rape kit bill so you can't throw rape kits away in the trash and you have to test all of them. I have helped pass seven laws in three sessions now. And then I also do speaking with different sports team teams, colleges. I have a national campaign and I'm just kind of an activist now <laughs> from all of that. That's a long way of saying I try to prevent what happened to me from happening to anybody else. Brenda, a lot of our audience are social studies teachers and educators who often have to address legislative issues. What, what did you learn from the legislative process? What have been the lessons and the successes and failures in trying to make more just laws around sexual violence? You know, the legislative process for me is, has been really interesting and, and I love doing legislative work. It's, it's interesting because I knew nothing about bills or laws or the process at all. Like I knew nothing. So what I did is I, I literally just walked into my Capitol. I think it was two months after my story had ran. I walked into my Capitol. I found a legislator who had made a comment in my story about the statute of limitations. And I said, this isn't okay. What can we do? I should be able to prosecute these men. And the legislator said, well, the first thing we do is, is, you know, extend the statute of limitations. I said, well, how do you do that? And they said, well, we have to create a bill. So I didn't know any of this stuff, but I just started asking. And so the legislators and people around me just answered my questions. I said, where do I show up? Who do I talk to? What do I do? How does this work? So I literally learned the entire legislative process, like in real time. And I tell people all the time, like anyone can be a citizen lobbyist. If there's something wrong with the law or you've been failed by the law, go find someone who is friendly to you in that issue and say, could you help me? This, this is a failure. We need to fix this bill or we need to create this law. And you can just learn about it as you go. You don't, I don't have a degree in it. I don't have a history, nothing. I just 
saw that there was a problem. And that's all I've done for, you know, the seven bills, uh, laws that I've passed. I just found a, a need and a problem and I found a legislator to help me. And so anybody literally can do this. It, you don't have to have any like qualifications necessarily to, to do this, to be a citizen lobbyist. It makes me think that we often do our government and civics classes backwards, right? We often start teaching kids about how laws are made and things like that instead of identifying the issues that they want to address to make the world a better place and then asking the right questions like you did. I think yes. the, Br the Brenda Tracy model of learning how government <laughs> works is a, is a much better way to do civics. It is, yes. Yeah. It really is. And the thing is, too, is I think that what I've really noticed when I'm when I'm doing these laws is that, you know, in Oregon, we had one of the shortest statutes of limitations in the country. We were kind of at the bottom of the barrel with six years. And there were activists that were trying and people are trying to extend the statute of limitations for, for, de for like a decade. And what happened is I came in with a real life story and said, this law is not okay. I should be able to prosecute. And when people saw the real life impact of that law on someone, that was when people were moved to action to change it. So there's a lot of people out there like me that you have a story, you have something that has happened to you. A law has failed you, you know, something that could make our society better. Take that story and, and go use it and talk to your legislators because I've had amazing success by using my own personal story and, and kind of making it real for people, our legislators, you know, let them see a real human being. So I know that passing laws is part of what you're doing, but it seems like there's another avenue that you're also trying to put an end to sexual violence, right? You set up a, a nonprofit, you set the expectation. Do you mind talking a little yeah. bit about that? So that's my national campaign. And that kind of all started in 1998 when Coach Mike Riley said, these are good guys made of bad choice. I hung on to those words and I harbored a lot of, well, well I'll say hatred. <laughs> I really, I hated him for, for all yeah. those years. I just didn't understand how someone who was supposed to be a good guy and, and raising up men could just talk about me that way. And so one of the first things that happened was when my story came out, Coach Mike Riley reached out to me. And he invited me to come to Oregon State because he was actually the football coach again at Oregon State in 2014 when my story came out. He invited me to come meet him and talk to the team. And I didn't go. And then he left and went to Nebraska. And he reached out and, and said, you know, I'd, I'd still like to meet you if you wouldn't want to come to Lincoln. And so the summer of 2016, I got on a plane and I went and I met Coach Mike Riley. And I talked to him, you know, about my life and how his words had affected me. And I worked with his football team. I shared my story with them. And then that story went viral in the media. And then schools just started calling me and asking me to come and, and work with their programs. And so I then went and talked to Baylor football, Oklahoma football. And I've been, I think over the last two years, I've been to about 70 programs. But what I noticed early on and, and very quickly doing this work is that there were some coaches that were standing in front of the room and saying to their players, your behavior matters. These are my expectations of you. And if you harm another person, domestic violence, stalking, rape, sexual assault, you don't get to play football for me. And there were other coaches who were not having these conversations and actually actively recruiting violent offenders. And so for me, I was like, okay, how do I get all of these coaches on the same page? And so what I did was I came up with a pledge and I called it the set the expectation pledge. And the pledge just says, if I commit this harmful behavior, I'm going to lose my eligibility. Playing sports is a privilege and not a right. And that pledge kind of turned into this campaign 
where we started raising awareness and having set the expectation games. And then I turned it into a nonprofit not long ago, just because there's been so much interest in it. So it's kind of become this little grassroots movement kind of by accident. <laughs> but I really try to use the power of sports and men to stand up against, against these issues and make a difference. Because I believe if women could stop sexual violence on our own, we would have already done it. Men are absolutely the missing component. What have you found has been the challenges in this message? I know you've said some people seem to have embraced, fully committed to this mission, and other people have not. Is it, is it your story, you think, that often compels them? And then in cases where you you don't see as much success. What are the problems oftentimes you face? Because I'm thinking about how this same type of work would translate into all kinds of different educational spaces when we're trying to do it. Like what, what would be the, the ways to make sure we do this right? Yeah. Uh, well, I definitely think my story has a lot to do with everything just because I think that my story is, is proven. People have admitted to, to their failures and, and what they've done. And it's, it's a very compelling and it's a strong story. So you see me as a victim of a, of a horrible crime, but then also as a survivor and an activist, you know, what I'm doing now. I think one of the most important things, though, is I don't talk to men like they're the problem. I talk to men as though they're the solution. And I think the delivery of the message really matters. It, ma it makes a difference. So when I stand in front of a room, you know, of a football team, very mass, you know, these very masculine places, <laughs> I stand in front of the room and I share my story and then I say to them, I'm not here because I think you're the problem. I'm here because I know that you're the solution. And here's why I know that. And they kind of lean in and they listen to me. And so by empowering our, our men and our, and our young people, talking about the things they can do and, and, and being positive and affirming, I think that goes a long ways. I think when we stand in front of a room and tell kids don't do this and we wag fingers at them, it, it doesn't, it's not received in the same way. So I, I think the delivery of the message has everything to do with the response. Brenda, so one thing we're really thinking about here, you've talked mostly to college students. I know you've talked to some high school students about this issue, but one thing we're trying to think about is how these same issues can be addressed in K-12 schools, in university programs, in the preparation of teachers who will be in environments. What are some of the larger issues we have to address? I know Gillette, when they came out with this message, is saying these are all symptoms of a larger issue, the, the way that men or fight and are aggressive and don't know how to express their emotions. I mean, what are some of the things you think we could do in educational spaces to address sexual violence and harassment? Yeah, well, I, I think we have to start having conversations about how we socialize our men and boys and, and, our, and our girls. I mean, we socialize our boys and our girls very, very differently. So one of the, some of the things I do with my teams that I work with is I don't necessarily tell them what I think, but I kind of help them to kind of think for themselves about some stuff. So one of the examples I use a lot of times is, you know, if dad takes his twins to the playground, they're, they're five-year-old twins and they're on the monkey bars and they fall and they scrape their knees and they're both crying. They both run up to dad and dad says to one, Oh, come here, baby. It's okay. Give me a hug. And then says the other one, get up. You're fine. Which one is the boy and which one is the girl? And nobody's ever gotten that question wrong. Everybody's always got it right hundred percent of the time. And then my question is, okay, why can't the boy get a hug? Uh, and then you see the guys like really thinking, like they're kind of like, huh, she's right. Why can't the boy get a hug? Why, why 
aren't boys allowed to cry? Why aren't boys allowed to express emotion, but women are? It's really just kind of, for me, having this dialogue of asking questions and allowing people to think about that. And I really think we have to address that because we're not allowing, you know, if I go through a breakup with a significant other, we all have the same feelings. But depending on who you are, if you're male, female, you're not necessarily allowed to process them. And so then we have our young men who don't know how to process their feelings. They're, it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to be vulnerable. It's not okay, you know, to be sad or to cry or any of these other things. So we, we have to have conversations about that. And then also just respect. I think for me, I believe that where respect lives, violence doesn't. So when we're talking about, you know, very small children, we can talk about consent. We can talk about respect, right? If you want to give your friend a hug, ask, is it okay if I give you a hug? If your small children don't want to sit on grandpa's lap, don't make them. Allow them to have ownership of their body. You know, there's, there's all these little things that we can do to, to make a difference. We have to start having these conversations because we're just, it, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good at all. I just saw an Edutopia article of a teacher who talks about teaching consent in elementary school and how that applies to a lot of things. But what it does is starts to help them start thinking about part of that is you're in charge of your body and yes. no one else gets to control that. And I know the same things happen in family situations, right? Everyone wants to hug young, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old kids because their heads are too big. So they're really cute and everything. And <laughs> But the problem yeah. is, is you're not, it's about you. It's not about them and what they want. And you're not often asking, you're often telling them, give me a hug, come give me a hug. And so those those things seem to be things that we could certainly start to address in schools. You also reminded me of the the Mask You Live In documentary that we mentioned earlier by Jennifer Newsom, because in that film, it has a scene where a teacher is actually talking with students and he literally has them, talks, uses the metaphor of a mask and says, you know, the mask is the masculinity that you put on when you come around every day. And then he says, he has them like make a little mask. And then he asks them to turn it around and says, what do you really feel when you yeah. come to school every day? And all the students start, these these men start sharing their real feelings. And it's clear no one's asked them to do that. And for some of them, right? And so yeah. it opens up this space where they can start exploring. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be frustrated and find ways yes. to, to, to express it. Yeah. And, and it's okay to be masculine as long as it's not in a form that harms another person. I think a lot of people think there's like this attack on masculinity and that's what they're kind of, you know, reading into the, into the Gillette ad, like, and it's not, but there's different forms of masculinity. So if it's the type that harms another person, then that's, that's not appropriate. And we have to talk about what that is and, and how do we change that? And, and not only that, but you know, if you look at the statistics of child abuse and child sex abuse, one in six boys will be sexually abused before they're 18, one in four girls before they're 18, one in three girls will, you know, experience interpersonal violence of some sort in high school. Our kids are, are, are dealing with these things and, and we need to create places where it's okay for them to share their feelings and talk about things. And, and we don't do that. And especially with our boys, we don't do that. And you can see the harm that it causes to themselves and sometimes to others. As you know, a lot of our listeners are social studies educators. And I also think about how we erase this history around sexual assault. Um, You know, Michael, we had the recent episode where we talked about Ona Judge, who was enslaved by George Washington. And one of the biggest fears for women who were slaves is that especially any place that they were moved to, like there's this new threat of sexual assault. 
And we often take that out of the curriculum. People don't talk about it. And what that does is it puts this taboo around the topic that exists for many people today. And and so history can even be a way where we could address some of these issues. But um, oh, so definitely. maybe. And maybe we need some more sociology classes. It seems like that's another. <laughs> Not enough schools no, have sociology. So. And I think being honest about the realities of what's going on in our society. I mean, so many people are silent about these things. You know, the more you talk about it and the more you address it, the better it becomes. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a registered nurse. I worked as a registered nurse for 14 years before I started doing this work. And, you know, when I was raising up my sons, we used real terms. We said penis. We said vagina. I, you know, when they asked me how babies are made, I, I told them an age appropriate truth, but I told them the truth. And it's interesting because I didn't act like it was taboo. I acted like it was fine and they were fine. <laughs> it's only, it's really only with our children when we act funny and we get uncomfortable that they sense our uncomfortableness and they're like, oh, we're not supposed to be talking about this. So to have just, you know, real normal discussions, it's, it's going to be okay. Our, our children are more resilient and smarter than we like to think. And let's not forget, they all have cell phones. So they all have access <laughs> to this information. So if you're not going to talk to them, they're going to find it on their phone. And right. the truth is our children don't necessarily need us for information anymore, but they need us to help decipher it and like sift through it because they literally have the world on their phone and they're looking. I tell parents all the time, if you do not talk to your kids about sex, they will learn about it from porn. And that's not okay. Right. Right. And this is, that's a lot of, with, with young children, especially these Kids are curious about all these topics. They want to do it. It's often the adults who are scared to yes. talk about it. And yes. so teachers just need to have, you know, a plan and have some courage and maybe a little bit of we can do some professional development in schools where we talk about yeah. how you set the expectation in your classroom. Well, and, and the other thing, too, I just want to make a note on since a lot of teachers are on the call is, you know, if we can't talk about healthy sex and healthy relationships, how are we going to talk about sexual violence? So if you have a child or a young adult who, you know, for even for me, nobody really talked to me about sex. We didn't have conversations. It was uncomfortable. And then I was put in a position where I had to sit in a, in a police department interview room with a police officer and explain in graphic detail what happened to me. It was hard enough for me just to talk about normal sex. And now I'm supposed to talk about rape. So we're absolutely doing a disservice to everybody by not allowing these conversations to happen and just talking about the reality of, of real life. <laughs> I like the way that your nonprofit has set the expectation because it seems like within the conversations that we should be having with students, with our children, you are talking about setting the expectation that this is normal. This should be discussed. Yes. It should not be hidden away. What a genius name for a nonprofit. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, it was a very purposeful intentional name and because I remember when I was thinking about even just the campaign what am I going to call it I was thinking like you know what do I want people to do what do I really at the end of the day what do I really want from people and coaches and and everyone and it really was to set the expectation and it really can translate to many different things because I you know I see this nonprofit and the movement growing into you know many areas but but yeah I, I thought that was good and not only that but I work with a lot of men and so I think that is it's not saying like stop sexual assault or you know it's not gendered so anybody can wear it i don't know it just it it's powerful i mean i feel like men it's, it's brilliant feel okay to wear the t-shirt 
right? Yeah. The guys wore the t-shirt says set the expectation and and they don't feel weird about it. It's, it's, a, it's not it's challenging a, their right. quote unquote masculinity. <laughs> it's very affirmative. It's a, it's a, yes. it's such a, it's genius. Well, it's because it's about what to do and not what not to do. Like, yeah. cause we do that a lot when we, especially when we're our kids, we tell them what not to do, but are you telling them what they can do? Are you empowering them? So really it's about, you know, engaging, empowering and educating so that they can go out and use that information into the world. And they're not just checking a box. It's great. I think that's perfect. Brenda Tracy, thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? So um, if you could go to setthexpectation.org, you can go to the nonprofit there. My handles on my social media are all at Brenda Tracy 24. Tracy is T-R-A-C-Y. That's how I first discovered you was through Twitter and you being an activist in that space. And you guys, I highly recommend following Brenda. She's every day addressing these issues and helping you think in critical ways about how we can continue to set the expectation. So again, thank you so much for joining us. And we certainly do hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank you so much, people, for joining us today as well. Um, we do appreciate it quite a bit. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.